A reading from the prophet Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin, Hanamel, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, and I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions, and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Maseah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Very strange reading we just heard. Um, if you were following along, if your eyes didn't sort of go back in your head, uh, it's, uh, it was read so, so beautifully, but it is a, a tough one. Anytime that phrase terms and conditions comes up, I don't know about you, but I just sort of gloss over or I click through. You know, every time terms and conditions are in my face, I'm either renting a car or uh, I'm, I'm, I'm updating my phone or I'm buying a plane ticket. And if you're like me, maybe you just sort of say a quick prayer that whatever's in those terms and conditions isn't going to get you too bad, uh, because I never read them. The only time I think I've ever read terms and conditions is when we bought a house. Um, so yeah, terms and conditions, not exciting stuff. Uh, then there's a, the, that wonderful phrase, open copy, and then deed of purchase. We have just heard the story of an Old Testament real estate closing. That is what goes on. 
And if you've ever been to a real estate closing, they're not exciting affairs. They don't, they, there's nothing that much that goes on. And I know that real estate itself is something people talk about, but this is kind of like listening to paint dry a little bit. What is happening? Why talk about this very odd uh, episode? And why was it assigned by the lectionary? Well, I, I think there's something we can get out of it. The Bible is strange that way. Uh, let me explain what's going on. It's 6th century B.C., and uh, the kingdom of Judah, which is sort of southern Israel today, uh, and it contains Jerusalem, it's under attack by the Babylonians. We're on the eve of the Babylonian exile, which is one of the great traumas to the Jewish people. It's an awful thing that happens, and, um, but that hasn't happened yet. At this point, he, the city of Jerusalem is being besieged. You can hear uh, the army outside. Like, I can hear fraternity parties going on from my house. Um, but it's more serious, clearly. The, the, Jeremiah, the prophet, he's known as the prophet of doom. He's not a light-hearted individual. Anytime you read about Jeremiah... Um, you know, he's not the sort of person you'd want to have over for dinner. He was uh, always saying the wrong thing and uh, getting in trouble. And this is why perhaps the king has him imprisoned and under house arrest. The last thing we need is him out there stirring up more trouble. So Jeremiah put him in, 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 in prison, but keep him here because he's our, he's our prophet. Uh, if you're a student of art history, well, Rembrandt, one of his all-time most uh, greatest masterpieces is of Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. You probably could actually picture it, or you may not know it by that name, but it's Jeremiah, this old man, and he is uh, sitting sort of reposed on what looks like the side of a hallway, maybe a cave, and in the distance you can see fires and explosions, and you can see the army that has come, that is outside the gates, and yet here you have Jeremiah, his eyes closed, his head against his hand, and he's, he's, he's sort of contemplative, but there's full of pathos and tragedy. And this is not um, what anyone wanted to have happen. So in the midst of this scene, this very dramatic, momentous occasion, we have what's almost a comedic episode. His cousin, Hanamel, comes to Jeremiah and says, Hey, Jeremiah, I, I, I got a real estate investment you might be interested in. You know, maybe you have someone in your family that's always trying to get you invest in something. Uh, it's not like a timeshare, but it's, he's, he, he says, Hey, you have first right of refusal on this field that's pretty close to Jerusalem, and I think it's really important that right now you buy this land. And so the smart answer would be no way. Get out of here. Get lost, Hanamel. Go bother the other cousins. Um, all this land is going to belong to the Babylonians on like Monday. I would be throwing my cash away. Uh, it's like buying land where the government is uh, planning to build a freeway or something. Okay? It's a terrible idea. And yet here we have the voice of God speaking to Jeremiah saying, go for it invest. Go all in. And what Jeremiah does, he doesn't haggle. Instead, he doesn't even try to get a deal based on the, you know, the uh, plummeting value of the land. 
that no one would have access to anyway. Instead, he makes a public display of paying a high price for this land. 17 shekels of silver was a lot. And he gathers people together and there's a public signing and a ceiling and there are witnesses. He wants everyone to watch him make this terrible investment. So let's recap. The world as they know it is ending. Jerusalem is being destroyed and the Jews are going into exile for a long time. And God gets Jeremiah in that moment to make a bold investment in the future. He doesn't just do it willy-nilly. It's linked to a promise, as it often is in the Bible. The promise is this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. You see, Jeremiah, for whatever reason, is able to trust the promise of God over what he sees around him. And the result, again, is what looks like a really bad idea. Now, it's a timely story, though, isn't it? Let's, let's get out of the 6th century B.C. And, and what about today? Well, if you've been living in America this week, you've probably been privy to a lot of very apocalyptic headlines. Now, this is uh, left, right, center, old, young, rich, poor, male, female. There's a sense of doom out there. And whether it's related to the environment or the government or the economy, people are feeling this impending doom. It, uh, it, there, the, Ross Douthat, writing in the New York Times last week, wrote an article called The Age of American Despair, in which he talked about deaths of despair in our country, which are deaths uh, related to uh, suicide, alcohol, and drug abuse. And he noted that deaths of despair, the rate of them, has doubled, doubled since the turn of the millennium, since the year 2000, to far surpassing anything in the 20th century. In fact, had deaths of despair remained at their turn of the millennium, at their Y2K levels, well then 70,000 fewer Americans would have died this past year. People are in despair. There is that it betrays, it betrays all sorts of things, but one thing it betrays, in addition to you know, uh, the accessibility of drugs and all these things, one thing it betrays is that there's a hopelessness about the future. This is, correlates to falling birth rates. Uh, people don't want to live. And uh, in the midst of this situation, now I, I've described it in terms of like a global national scale, um, think about your own life. Maybe there's some situation in your own life that, where you, what you see makes you think something is hopeless. Maybe it's a relationship that you think has no future, and you wish it did. Maybe it's a child that just can't seem to get it together, and you really think they've blown it for the last time. Maybe it's a job that you feel stuck in, and you really don't see a future for it. Whatever it is that you see around you that leads you to despair, this isn't just a sociological phenomenon, it's a personal one. Now in the midst of this, we hear talk about faith. Faith being the evidence of things unseen. That's how the writer to the Hebrews puts it. Faith is the 
reality that despite how things look, God is at work. And it's a biblical pattern. It's not, I don't think it's a coincidence that Rembrandt used the same model for Jeremiah that he used for his famous painting of St. Paul in prison. Another haggard man who, despite appearances, appearances of a world falling apart and an impending doom, was writing these missives of great joy and hope about the future. But it doesn't have to just be St. Paul. It could be Abraham. There's all sorts of bad idea people in the Bible. Uh, its Bible is full of people who are given to trust God's promises despite how things look on the ground. And it makes all the difference. I mean, in contemporary terms, faith, you might say, is doubt of what seems obviously true about you or about the world or about another person. Faith is, is, is moving beyond a perception of others or yourself or the world based on the facts on the ground and moving into a perception of how, uh, what God says about these things. Now, people sometimes say, when you say the evidence of things unseen, you know, they say, well, well Dave, I, I want to talk to you about uh, what, what's real, which is what I can see. Uh, I don't want to talk about what's unseen. That's not real. It's like, we, when you hear that, you just want to say, what, what do you mean? You don't have to be a religious person to know that the most real things in the world, and by that I mean fear, and I mean love, and guilt, and trust, and loyalty, these things are the most real. That's what actually shapes how people act and think and, and do all of the things that become seen. So uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this, this idea of evidence of things not seen is actually, that is the realm in which God operates. And that's good news because that's where most of life actually happens. So again, if you're talking about St. Paul, you're talking about Jeremiah, you're talking about Abraham, this idea of faith that it may make no sense right now, But God is in the redemption business. And we should note that the redemption business, the promise of faith, is not a short game. It's what they call the long game. Jeremiah is told to put these deeds in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. The promises may not come to fruition for a while. Or they may come soon, but faith is the long game. Now, let me give you an example of how this all collides, this, um, this despair and promise and seen and unseen. The 1980 film, My Bodyguard, it's a pretty great film. It's not amazing, but it's pretty good. It's the story of a young man named Linderman, and he's a depressed high schooler who sort of exudes a, a don't-mess-with-me attitude, a bit of a bully but really more than that, just sort of a you know, leather jacket wearing, don't talk to me kind of guy. And there are rumors about Linderman that he once killed a kid. The truth is that he actually witnessed the death of his younger brother, and he's come to blame himself for that incident. Linderman is in full-scale shutdown mode as a 17-year-old. He's headed for trouble. He's what you would call a lost cause or a hopeless case. The future's not looking bright for this guy. Well, then one day, a new student named Carl befriends Linderman, 
Carl invites Slenderman over to his house to meet his family, including Carl's grandmother, who's played by uh, Ruth Gordon, uh, the amazing Ruth Gordon. If you've ever seen Harold and Maud, she's Maud. Uh, and Carl says, you know, you're going to meet my grandmother. She's a little crazy. Anyway, Grandma Ruth immediately gravitates towards Linderman, towards this new guest. She insists on showing the two boys a parlor trick, imposing upon Linderman to allow her to read his palm, to tell his future. And so she takes his open hand in hers, and after a minute, she points to a pronounced scar on the boy's wrist. What's this, she asks. It's nothing, he responds. And he pulls his sleeve down and retracts his hand in a closed fist. You see, it was a scar from the ultimate act of despair. He had tried to kill himself. And yet she persists. She grabs his fist back and opens his hand saying, I'm not through with you yet, kid. Give me your hand. You're among friends. He relents. And then she looks down at his hand and looks back at him, making eye contact and says, let's see. I see a long life and good things, lots of good things. Well, the boy's whole countenance suddenly does a 180, and it is the beginning of a hugely redemptive plot line, those those words being spoken over him. You see, where some, including Linderman himself, see despair, no future, Grandma Ruth sees the opposite. Now, it's a beautiful picture of what it looks like or what it, to live in God's world, despite the apocalyptic warnings that you see out there and in here. And yet, ultimately, it begs the question of you. Are you a good investment? Are you? Most of us, I think, if we're being honest... Maybe we pretend to be a good investment in order to get people's trust or their business. But if we were asked in the middle of the night, are you a good investment? If I had money to invest in one person here, who should it be? Well, I don't know. It it could be good, but that person over there seems to have a lot more going on. I think we're afraid that we're not a good investment. And most of us know what we're like, that we say one thing and do another, that we're not always as reliable as we should be, that maybe we're self-interested where we should be self-giving, that maybe we're simply not quite sure who or what we are. And we say, I don't, I don't, we're afraid that we're not a good investment. Well, God sees all the things that you see, all the things you see out there, and all the things you see out here, and he draws a different conclusion. You, my friends, are the real estate in this equation. And he spent a lot more than Jeremiah to procure you. When the deal went down, as Bob Dylan says, there were, there were lots of witnesses, and the deed of purchase was signed in God's own blood. You see, he gave his own life in order to make what looks like a terrible investment. But that is grace, that despite how things look, despite all of the givens and the facts on the ground, goodness and light will flourish again. 
God is not through with you yet, not by a long shot. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Amen.